Good morning. Um, we are going to be in the book of Philemon this morning, and I have I put the text out around on chairs. We emailed it also on Friday so people at home could print it off and have it. Um, I wanted to do this because um, as you look at it, there are some really important words repeated, and you don't have to worry about I put the Greek words on there in English. You don't have to worry about that, but what it lets you see is how when Paul will repeat a word and how significant that is in the letter. So if you want to follow along and mark up on this, um, feel free to do so to your, your heart's desire. Um, next week, by the way, Corey Schleep is going to be here who runs Christ First Counseling, who we partner with, and he um, they do counseling here in Emporia. Um, we're going to be... Pat and I are going to go see our oldest, our oldest daughter for her birthday. We haven't had a birth, spent a birthday with her in three or four years. I don't remember how long. So we're going to be uh, in North Carolina. It's been great temperatures there this week, but it's ramping up to hot when we're going to be there, wouldn't you know? And it's very humid where we're going. We were just talking about that with worship. Okay, continuing in the series, where we're trying to really gain a biblical perspective on how do we deal, look at larger cultural issues that will inevitably face us. And there's going to be another big one coming up here pretty quick in the news. And what do you do when there's all these things nationally demanding your attention? And as I've said, we're trying to take the larger view, the 30,000-foot view of the landscape, trying to really build a biblical worldview, big things that help us to deal, to know how to respond to like those larger issues. Um, and so that's what we're doing. To this point, we've talked about um, seeing that every human being is created in the image of God, how significant that is. Everybody is deserving of respect and dignity. We talked about seeking biblical justice for those who truly need it. Um, we looked at Jesus and how he thought globally, but he acted locally. How his singular fish vision and mission, his focus was on the mission of God and on extending the kingdom of God. Um, dealing with real people in the real communities where he was ministering with those real people. And last week we saw how Paul followed in Jesus' steps, how he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and of Jesus, how he spread that gospel person to person, house by house, block by block, city by city. And while doing that, planting churches, and if you remember, little colonies of heaven, places where heaven would be on display in those communities. And what we saw was, is that Paul was known more for the gospel than for his political agendas. Just preaching the gospel by itself and planting churches was enough to create riots in most every town. And so he kept his focus on that. Um, he was just planting those gospel seeds, which he knew would create those gospel communities, those gospel colonies, that he knew would spread and slowly impact culture, primarily through conversion and individual changed lives, colonies that would eventually reshape that empire. Um, I want to show you one of the radical things that the churches he planted, these little colonies of heaven, one thing that they would exhibit that would be totally different than the culture they lived in. And it's so important, this concept is repeated three times in three of, in three of Paul's epistles. In 1 Corinthians 12, he says, we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink, one body, one spirit, Jew, Gentile, slave, free. All of you 
who were baptized into Christ in Galatians 3 have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And then in Colossians chapter 3, which is the sister book to Philemon. Uh, Philemon lived in the city of Colossae. We'll talk about that in a minute. Here there is no Jew or Gentile or Jew, uncircumcised or circumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and Christ is in all. The, the makeup of these colonies he was planning were so radically diverse in their makeup, there was nothing like it in the Roman Empire. Nothing. Pliny the Younger, who I quoted last week, and who I learned is a person a few of my friends are really big fans of, um, which I didn't know, but it's good to know. He wrote to Trajan the emperor, and here's one of the things he said about the Christians. He said, unlike anywhere in the empire, they embraced people of every rank. They embraced people of every rank. This was the reality in the Roman, of the church in the Roman Empire. And it's hard for us as Americans to understand how radical this was. Um, because frankly, in virtually all of human history, in virtually every place, people have always been divided by rank and status, always. And you never cross those boundaries. The rubbing of shoulders we experience of America, where we rub, brush shoulders with people of every rank, every day in the U.S., 98% of humanity has never seen that happen. I mean, just 100 years ago in Europe, even in Downton Abbey, for those of you who are big fans, even in Downton Abbey, society strongly split people along class lines, upper classes, lower classes, people of different backgrounds, never, ever mingling, never. Um, and like virtually everywhere else in the world, the Roman world was strictly divided socially by gender, social status, race, economic status, class. And those different segments, they never mixed. You never mixed with people of different segments. So you would never find a home with the kind of diversity that was found in the average house church across the Roman Empire. The social barriers were way too high and too uncrossable. And so that, that setup to me really makes what happens with Philemon really significant. Now last week when I ended the sermon, I asked the question, all right, so Paul's all about the gospel, spreading the gospel, planting churches. Did um, his overarching commitment to the gospel... Did that mean that he really didn't personally care for individuals and individual situations? Um, did he not really personally care about the injustice in the empire? And today we're going to look at the book of Philemon. And what I love about this letter is this letter shows to us a real world example of how Paul applied the gospel locally to real people that he knew and that he was working with. That this just wasn't theory for him that the gospel affected the way he responded to individual situations around him. So, again, we're going to look at Philemon. Um, and I want to set it up briefly, if you don't mind. Philemon is the shortest letter, 355 words in Greek, 400 and something in English, I think. I mean, enough to fit on one page of a paper. A very personal letter. It's one of the few that Paul wrote to an individual. Actually, he wrote it to a church, but directed to an individual. It was written to Philemon. The church in Colossae met in Philemon's home. He was a wealthy man, we know, because he had a home, number one, and he had a guest room, which we'll see in the letter, which most homes didn't have, and it was large enough to host a house church, and because he owned slaves, so he was a wealthy guy. 
He had become a believer through Paul's ministry. We'll see in verse 19 of Philemon. He had become a believer through Paul. Though Paul had never traveled to Colossae. Um, let me show you that. Here's Ephesus. And here's Colossae, about 100 miles. Paul had been in Ephesus for quite a long time. And Paul had never traveled there. So likely what had happened is Philemon, being wealthy, had been on a business trip in Ephesus, had met Paul, had heard the gospel, and had become a follower of Jesus there. And then he went home, and along with a man named Epaphras, who you read about in Colossians and in this letter, they started the house church in the city of Colossae, in Philemon's home. And then you've got Paul. He's the author of the letter. When he writes this, he's in prison. Uh, many biblical scholars think that he was imprisoned in Ephesus at this time. I'm not going to go into all the reasons. He also could have been in prison in Rome or in Caesarea Maritima, but it but a lot of people think he was actually in prison in Ephesus. So he's in prison writing this. And then the letter's about a man named Onesimus, someone who had been a slave of Philemon and had run away from him. We'll see in verse 15. And from what we see in verses 18 and 19, he had probably stolen money or property or both from Philemon when he left the house and ran away. So he had left behind a broken relationship with his master and this unresolved financial debt from whatever he stole. So whatever the case was, in that world, Onesimus would have had a price on his head. There were bounty hunters who would look for people like that, and the common punishment for a runaway slave in Paul's time was crucifixion. That was the most common punishment for a runaway slave. According to Roman law, Philemon had every right if he ever saw him again, to have him killed. Now, it appears that Onesimus sought Paul out. We'll see that when we get in the letter. Perhaps he had heard from him, about him from Philemon. Maybe he had been on the trip with him in Ephesus and had met Paul and heard him present the gospel. Whatever it was, through his encounter with Paul, he had become a believer. And because of his new faith, and probably at Paul's initiative, he was willing to return to Philemon, to go back to Colossae, to confess his wrongdoing and to make it right, even though in doing so he was putting his life at stake, and he knew that. One more thing um, as we're talking about this. When Paul sends this letter of, to Philemon, he sends it with Onesimus and a man named Tychicus, and he sends not just this letter, he sends the letter to the church at Colossae at the same time. We're told that in Colossians chapter 4. So Tychicus and Onesimus show up at the house church one day when they're meeting, and they've got two letters from Paul from everybody to read. Um, so it's a, it sets up a pretty interesting situation. Again, we go to the letter a minute, you'll see. Um, quick comment about slavery before looking at the text. Slavery in the Roman Empire was very different than the race-based chattel slavery experienced in our culture in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. Slavery in Rome was not based on race or ethnicity. Um, the primary way to become a slave, the two main ways to become a slave in the Roman Empire is you were in a population or an army that was defeated in battle, in which case you would almost automatically be made into a slave. So even if an Italian town rebelled against Rome and they fought and defeated, those Italians would become most likely slaves. The other way is to be captured by bandits or pirates, kind of like Jack Sparrow, you know that. You, you're, can, can you imagine being captured by bandits or pirates and then sold for money? Which actually happened to Julius Caesar when he was a young man, before he was Caesar. He was captured by pirates. 
and a ransom price was put on his head as a slave. But I'm just going to leave it at that. That's, that's the kind of, it's, it's different than the slavery we tend to think of. All right, one more thing before we jump into the text. Um, Paul demands something of both of these guys. For Philemon, it's, I want you to go back to your master and reconcile and take these two letters with you. For Philemon, he's going to ask some really big things, which we're going to see. He's, he expects Philemon to do some things that were totally unheard of in that day. So, let's jump to the letter. And on the back of the letter, I've got a chart. Um, I find charts are helpful when I'm reading a book of the Bible. I want to know the structure of it. The first, two, first three verses is his greeting. Paul always starts with a greeting. Verses 4 to 7 is his prayer for Philemon. Verses 8 to 22 is the main body where he is going to make a plea to Philemon. Then he's going to make a promise to Philemon. And then he's going to come back with an ultimate plea. And then we're going to look at the closing in verses 23 to 25. And you can see on here some of the key words in this letter. I reference um, Colossians on here because this refers back to Onesimus and Tychicus, and I'll refer to a few of those names. But that's kind of the structure of the book of Philemon. So, verse 1. Verse 1. In your Bible, I'm reading out of the NIV or off this sheet, I encourage you to have a pen because we might draw some lines or circle some things. Here's what he says. Paul a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker. Also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. To the church that meets in your home. Um, it's really interesting. Paul, because he's going to, you're going to see, he's going to ask a really big thing. And he could easily say, Paul, uh, an apostle of Jesus Christ. There's like only 12 of us or maybe a few sub-apostles, but he's like, I'm an apostle. But he doesn't do that. He identifies himself as a prisoner coming at him kind of through the back door. I love how Paul does this. We're going to see this prison reference multiple times throughout here. Um, but that's how he comes to them. He never once in this letter plays the card of his apostolic authority, though he could have. Never does. And what's interesting to me is he writes this to Philemon, uh, to Appia and Archippus, who people think probably is his wife and his son, and to the church that meets in your home. For a long time, I thought this was just a letter to Philemon. I don't know why. It's just not paying attention. But this was not just a letter like they show up, and when they show up, maybe on a Sunday, and they go, hey, we've got two letters from Paul, and everybody's excited. It isn't like one we're going to read to the church. Here, Philemon, take this home. Both of them are written to the church. You're even going to see at the end that the U's at the end are plural. So this is to Philemon, but Paul wants it read to the church because he wants the church to know what's going on. And this, it's a way to show how to live the gospel to the whole church. So um, pretty interesting to me. Um, and I want to tell you, can you imagine, they're gathering on a Sunday morning and Philemon, I mean Onesimus and Tychicus show up with these two letters that they're going to read that Sunday morning. And they pass them out. In my mind, they read the letter to the Colossians first, and then they pull out this one. Oh, there's a letter for Philemon. Oh, Philemon, not just you, but the whole church. But the whole time this is happening, Onesimus is sitting in that room in that house church. Probably a letter he hasn't read because it would have been sealed, and he doesn't know what in the world this is going to say. And he's, he's present as this is being read. Um, I'd be sweating bullets if I were him, right? Because what's Philemon going to do to me tomorrow? 
And what's Paul going to write about? Because I really have no clue. So look at verse 3. A very common greeting for Paul. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes we blow over that like it's unimportant, but it's actually very significant because the gospel is a gospel of grace, because it's by grace that we're saved through our faith. And it's a gospel of reconciliation with God, a peace being made with God who, who we were enemies with. And it, but it's not just the, this with God, this vertical, it's horizontal, because I'm to apply that grace to other people, and I, it's gospel that doesn't just make me at peace with God, but it should make me at peace with other people. So those words are not just meaningless throw-ons for him. So in verse 4, I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love. And, you know, I should have made that bold because it occurs several times in here. And I think it's a really significant letter. But because of your love for all of his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ or in the Lord Jesus. Um, Interesting because Paul always puts those in reverse order in his other letters. He always talks about your love, that, he always talks about your faith that produces love. He reverses the order with Philemon, emphasizing the love to him because he has great love, but he's going to ask him to, to do an act of love. So verse 6, I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening our understanding of every good thing that we have. That word partnership is significant. I put the Greek word next to it. It's the Greek word koinonia. If you've been around church very long, you've heard that. That was a big word, I think, in the 70s and 80s for fellowship. You know, we'd always, at least in the churches I used to be in, oh yeah, we're going to have koinonia today. It, it meant kind of the shared fellowship together. Um, the root of that idea is a common life, a sense of family, of unity, a sense of sharing. But it can also mean partnership, a commitment to a common Lord, common beliefs, a common way of life, common goals, and a common mission. And so Paul, it, we're going to see this repeated later. It's really important in this letter where Paul is like, where's this partnership that we have? I'm going to pray that it's really effective. Um, one hint, by the way, I didn't say about letters of Paul. Anytime you read a letter of, a, of Paul, the opening prayer is actually very significant. He'll put words and thoughts in the opening prayer that occur throughout the whole letter and set you up for what's coming. And so his reference to Simon's love and partnership are actually extremely important. So he repeats love again in verse 7. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. So you're known for your love. You refresh the hearts of the Lord's people. I hear a lot of good things about you from um, the time you become a believer to my imprisonment. And so now verse 8, you see the word therefore? That's significant. We're shifting now into the main body of the letter. And Paul's going to make a huge request of Philemon. Something that's totally unheard of at that time and is totally countercultural. And what he's going to ask Philemon is going to be very difficult. Very difficult. And I think you're going to notice as we read through this that Paul, I love the way he writes this. It's, he's very humble. He's really gradual with what he does. He's graceful, a little bit playful. And he, everything's kind of like, not through the back door, but I mean, everything's kind of subtle. And I, I really appreciate how Paul does this. Again, so let's look at verse 8. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do. Okay, 
Finally, even, and now listen, he still doesn't know what's going to be asked. He doesn't even know what the letter's about. And suddenly Paul's like, hey, I could be bold. I could play the apostle card if I wanted to, but I'm not going to. I'm not going to throw my weight around. He says in verse 9, I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. The third time I think that we've seen that word in the letter already. I appeal to you on the basis of love. So Paul's not going to pull rank. But rather, he wants him on the basis of agape love to make a decision, a choice. And to Paul, love is the highest motivation, and it's consistent with everything Jesus taught, right? Love God with all of your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind. Love your neighbors, yourself. It's the foundation of everything. James says it's the royal law. In one of my favorite passages of 2 Corinthians 5.14, Paul says this, Christ's love compels me. The thing that drove everything Paul did, his decisions, was the love of Christ. And I love that what Paul does is he's not running around forcing people to do things, but he's saying to them essentially, you've experienced the love of God. That should compel everything you do. You've experienced the gospel, so be the gospel to people. He wants Paul, Philemon, to act out of conviction, not out of compulsion. Good for Paul. Because he knew that a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. Right? So I love his approach. And in verse 9, so he says, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm appealing to you on the basis of love. Um, it's none other than Paul, just me. I, I love this. An old man, <laughs> and now also a prisoner of Christ. He comes back again. I'm just an old dude stuck in a prison. I've given all for him, even in my old age. When I read that... Um, if Daniel Buller is watching or is here next service, Daniel would love this. It reminds me of George Washington, a story I didn't know till I read his biography. At the end of the war, a bunch of his lieutenants gathered in New York City in a pub because they were going to lead a coup. They were going to overthrow the government that had been set up because they weren't getting the pay, they, the back pay they should have gotten. So they were meeting in this pub, and unbeknownst to them, George Washington, he heard of the meeting, and he showed up at the meeting in one of his old uniforms. He walked to the front of the room just before it started. He knew when it was going to start. Walked to the front, and he pulled out a letter that he had pinned to them. And he talked in the letter about how he had fully supported his own self during the war, so much so he had drained most of the funds, his family funds. And as he pulled out that letter, we're told he pulled out his spectacles, slowly unfolded them, and he said something like this, not only have I grown old in the service of my country, but I've lost my eyesight in the service of my country. That's why if you go to those old one-room schoolhouse, you see George Washington up front. You know, we don't, we're not here to talk about George. But after reading that letter, the group disbanded. And to me, it's the same thing. Like Paul comes and he says, Oh, I'm kind of old in my service of Jesus. Let me unfold my spectacles. And I'm still here in shackles in prison. So I just, I love uh, his approach. And so verse 10, he's going to start getting to the subject, the matter at hand. And it's going to be the first time he's going to mention the name Onesimus. And again, remember, when the church is hearing this, when Philemon's hearing this, they don't know the purpose of the letter. Onesimus doesn't even know what's going on in this letter. And he says, I want to appeal to you for my son, Onesimus. 
I want to appeal to you for my son Onesimus. The name Onesimus meant useful. That'll be meaningful in a minute. To my son who became my son. Again, I think the third time, while I was in chains. A commentator has said, this is almost like a, uh, a birth announcement card that's delivered. Hey guys, Onesimus became a follower of Jesus. He's in a right relationship with God. Um, isn't that really cool? He became my son while he was visiting my imprison, me in prison. And he uses the word son twice just to emphasize the intimacy and that Paul is his spiritual father. So I can imagine this letter's being read and it comes to this part. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus who became my son while in chains. And I could, in my mind, I can see Philemon giving a little glance over to Onesimus and being like, huh, he came to know Jesus as Lord just like I did. He was forgiven of his sins just like I was. And then in verse 11, formerly he was useless to you. Do you see the play on his name? Useful. He was useless to you. But now he's become useful both to you and to me. Um, for Philemon, when Onesimus ran away, all the money he had paid for him had been lost, stole some things. That man had quit being useful to Philemon. And I'm sure every time he heard the name, I mean, to, every time he heard the name Onesimus, it was like, fingernail scratching on a chalkboard, right? Because this man had run from him and was totally useless to him. But Paul's saying, this person who used to be useless has experienced this radical change and he is now useful to you and to me. And I'm sending him back to you. Verse 12. The one who is my heart. There's heart again. That's, I think that's the second time that word's been used. Paul, I mean, Philemon refreshes hearts. He goes, this one who is my very heart, I'm sending him back to you. Paul would have loved to have kept him because he was helping him advance the gospel wherever he was in prison. But Paul knew that according to Roman law that he had to send him back to the owner. And so that's what he's doing. So verse 13, man, I would like to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am, and he mentions it again a fourth time, while I'm in chains for the gospel. So again, while I'm stuck here in prison, I wish that I could have kept him, but I'm not going to, um, to take your place in helping me. There is really something very weighty in this verse, that word helping. I put the Greek word in there. Um, diakoneo, diakonos. We get our word deacon from it. It's frequently translated minister. Rather, Paul could have used the Greek word Duleo, which was a word for slave service, but he doesn't use that word. He intentionally uses this word diakonos, which, as I said, is frequently translated as minister in the New Testament. He's making a very strong implication. He is now a minister of the gospel with me and with you. Look at, uh, here's some examples of it. In Romans 15, 16, Paul calls himself a minister of Christ Jesus. And in the letter to Colossians, he calls Epaphras, who was the founder of the church with Philemon, a faithful diakonos. And in Colossians 4.7, Tychicus, who brought the letter with him, he also calls a faithful minister diakonos. So he's putting Onesimus on the same level with himself and with these other people in the church who are on mission with God. It's pretty heady stuff, at least for me. 
uh, I'm like, wow, that's really powerful. But in 14, but I did not want to do anything without your consent. Again, he's not throwing his weight around. I w- you've got to be the one to decide all this. So that any favor you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. I'm not going to throw my weight around. There's no compulsion, no constraint, no coercion here. Verse 15, perhaps, maybe, who knows, perhaps the reason he was separated you from a little while, interestingly, instead of saying he ran away from you, he was separated you from a little while, was that you might have him back forever. He's kind of expressing the sovereignty of God here. Um, Up to this point, before he came back, his running away could have been seen from purely human earthly eyes as a tragedy to Philemon. But Paul, however, sees it differently. He sees it through eternity, the lens of eternity, and he's saying, hey, perhaps God had a purpose in his running away in all of this. Philemon, think about it. Through this dark little while, the God has secretly at work redeeming the whole situation and specifically Onesimus for eternal purposes because now you have him back as a brother forever. Forever. Because Paul knows, I mean, he wrote it under the leading of the Spirit that God causes all things to work for good to those who love him and are called according to his purposes. So the perhaps is important. And you got him back forever. This is significant language in verse 16. He's starting to hint at something. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He used the word dear above of Philemon. In Colossians, he used the word dear of Epaphras and of Tychicus. So as a dear brother. He's very dear to me, but he's even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. That verse is packed with a lot of stuff. I really love verse 16. He's calling him his brother as a sibling of the family of God. If you look at how often brother and sister is used in here, I think I've got them bolded. He calls Timothy brother. Um, Aphia in verse 2, sister. He calls Philemon brother, not just once but twice. Verse 7 And we're going to see it in verse 2. And now he calls Onesimus brother. We're all one family. We're all one family. And this is all significant because in those times, slaves were not considered as humans, but as things. But that's not the Paul language uses of him. It's all humanizing him. In verse 10, twice he calls him his son. In verse 12, my very heart. Now in verse 16, your dear brother, very dear to me, dear to you, as a fellow man, like we talked about two weeks ago. Every human being is created in the image of God and is worth being treated with dignity and love and respect. So he's, that's, like, that's image of God language to me. As a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. Brother in the Lord. Philemon, we're all brothers, we're all family, we are all equal participants in God's grace. Because remember, we're partners, we're all in this together. So, verse 17, so, the big request, 
I mean, he's getting to a pretty big one. He's going to get the big one in a minute. So, if you consider me a partner, which he called him earlier, all right, I consider you a partner for the gospel. If you see me as a partner, if we're all in this together, we're all family, welcome him as you would welcome me. Greet him with the same warmth, the same lavish hospitality that you would bestow on me as an apostle. He doesn't say that, but the way you would welcome me, I want you to welcome him. Not as a slave, but as a sibling. And I want to tell you, that's a big request. He's saying specifically, welcome him back. In other words, don't punish him, don't cast him off. I want you to welcome him back. And again, Paul's refusing to, he could pull up his apostolic authority, as you would welcome me as an apostle. He doesn't say that. Um, I just love that he doesn't play that card. That Paul in this whole letter is laying down his own status and authority because that's what Jesus did. And he's wanting to embody and model to Philemon how he wants Philemon to ask and all this, which is, I'd like you to lay down your status and authority as a master. So verse 18. If he's done any wrong, you any wrong, if he owes you anything, I want you to charge it to me. In fact, I, Paul, I'm writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. If he has ripped you off in any way, I want you to put that on my bill. I'm going to pay it back. And then he just throws in this really cool thing. By the way, not to mention that you owe me your very self, right? Isn't that cool? Uh, <laughs> and like that's the last thing Paul says. By the way, you, you owe me your very self. That's kind of the strongest comment he has, and it's before verse 20. Um, 21, where he's going to ask for the big thing. So Paul is, to me, so cool, so good in this letter. So verse 20. I do wish, brother, second time he's called him that, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. And that word benefit, benefit, you can see it's the same root word as the word Onesimus. I want uh, some, something useful from you. So he's like, I want you to become Onesimus to me, which is to me, it's really interesting. Um, I want you to do something useful. And specifically, what is it? He says, refresh my heart in Christ. In Greek, that word my is the way it's placed. It's, it's like bold, the way we bold something in English. You've refreshed other people's hearts. He talked about it in verse 7. I want you now to refresh my heart. It's my turn to receive that love and refreshment from you. That, so I want you to refresh my heart in Christ. And now, here it comes. The big, all-important verse 21. It's the ultimate thing he's been driving for. It's the really big ask that he's going to have. Something that so far... Um, He hasn't, he's just been getting there, but hasn't gotten to this point. And now it comes. So verse 21. And I just want you to hear these words. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing, because he's asked him to take him back as a brother, right? Welcome him. And he says, confident of your obedience, I am writing to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. What do you think the even more is that Paul's implying? What do you think it is? What would you guess? Any ideas? 
forgive him, welcome him back, not a slave anymore, a brother. I want you to do even more. Set him free. Set him free. Philemon, I want you to do with him what God did for you. What the father in Luke 15 did. When the son came back as a slave because he didn't have his shoes, that's a whole sermon, he came back not as a free man and how that father took him back as a son and he's saying, I want you to do the same thing God's done for you. I feel like Paul's done a masterful job of building to that request. If you looked on the back again at the, uh, the chart that I made, um, you can see that this plea for Onesimus freedom, what it was based on. I mean, in the prayer, it was based on Philemon's gracious and generous character. It's based on, in the middle, if you look, on the basis of agape love, on the basis of my own sacrifice, on the basis of Onesimus' conversion, on the basis of Onesimus' ministry, on the basis of his new status as a child of God and as your brother, on the basis of our relationship. Welcome him as you would welcome to me. Hey, and I'm going to pay you back and then before the ultimate plea, and you owe your very self to me, and I want to have a benefit from you, I want you to refresh my heart, and I'm confident of your obedience. So he's, to me, he's built this really awesome case that's very subtle, getting to that point that asking for his freedom. So verse 22, he's going to start wrapping it up. One more thing, prepare a guest room for me, because I have hope, I hope to be restored to you, this is to the whole, you see it's plural, to the whole church, to restore to you in answer to your plural prayers. That word restored, again, it's a hint. I hope to be restored, and I am hoping and saying that, that with Onesimus, he will be restored. Do you see the Greek word, charizomai, charis, grace, it's the same word grace is. I am hoping to receive grace it was, this word was frequently used not just to show favor, but it was also used of pardoning, forgiving of a favor that cancels a debt. Okay. Verse 23, Epaphras, who helped plant that church in Colossae, my fellow prisoner in Christ, the fifth time he mentions being in prison, Epaphras sends you greetings. So Epaphras knows about this letter, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas and Luke, who are all my fellow workers. Those are all some pretty big names. So he's sending it to Philemon, his family, to a community in Colossae, and it's coming from a community of people. And like these guys that you all, these kind of big guys, Mark, Aristarchus, Luke, Epaphras, these guys all know that I'm sending this. So their weight's behind it too. And then he ends with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Again, grace, which is what he opened with in verse 3. And he ends with grace, because this is all about grace. And what he's asking for is for him to show the grace of God to Onesimus. I think Paul's seeking three things, maybe four. Remember, he's already sent Onesimus home with a confession to restore, to, to go back a great risk to himself. But Philemon, he wants forgiveness of Philemon, of Onesimus. He wants him to forgive him. He wants him to restore him, to embrace him fully as a brother in Jesus. And three, in verse 21, I'm convinced he wants him to free him, to set him free from slavery. And the fourth thing that he's hinting at, and then once you free him, if you could send him back to me to continue ministering with me, that would be great. 
And again, I want you to understand that what Paul is seeking from him is unheard of in the Roman world on multiple levels. This was so radical. A slave returning to the place he had run away from, knowing he would likely get crucified, they wouldn't do it. It wouldn't happen. A master receiving him without crucifying, having him crucified in the center square likely wouldn't happen. Not only that, but actually, instead of punishing him, receiving him as a brother into the local community of Jesus, that kind of thing didn't happen in the empire. And even more, setting him free, and even perhaps more, sending him back once he's free to work with Paul. The things that Paul's asking of him could only be done because of and through Jesus Christ and because of the gospel. That's behind all of this. When I can hear Philemon to his neighbors who ask, Hey, what are you going to do with Onesimus? We hear he's back. You're going to, you're going to nail him to a, have him nailed to a cross? And he's like, you know what? I won't have Onesimus crucified. In fact, I'm going to accept him as a brother and set him free as an equal. Because Jesus, the world's true Lord, not Caesar, because of Jesus, because he was crucified for me. And so I'm not going to crucify him. And imagine what the people of Colossae were saying about this, because this would have been scandalous. A rich man losing a slave running away and stealing property. Imagine what the talk around town would have been. Did you hear what happened in that house church? We've never seen anything like this before. When that Jesus becomes the Lord of a person's life and the Lord of a community of Jesus, look at what happens. The people in that city, in that whole empire, would not could not even imagine this kind of thing happening with a slave. But they were seeing it in the believing community in Colossae. They were seeing it in that colony in Colossae. They were seeing a new way of living, a new way of acting as a community. The church that met in Philemon's house was acting as a colony of heaven on earth. Isn't that cool? To me, that's so beautiful. I love it. And do you know what happened? We're pretty sure we know. We know from the church father Ignatius, writing 50 years after this letter, that he was not only freed, but he eventually became the bishop over the house churches in Ephesus. And bishop, as that grew, what it came to mean is of all the house churches and all the shepherds in those house churches, there would be one shepherd who would be over all of them, that he became the big shepherd in the city of Ephesus. And when Ignatius was writing about Onesimus, he used the exact same Greek words that appear in verse 11 in his writing about him as one who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful to both you and to me. Amazing. He not only was set free, but he ended up becoming a powerful spiritual leader in that region. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news? So I, I love this letter. I love this story because in it, what I see is Paul acting locally which is what we've been talking about, with real flesh and blood people right in front of him, people God had brought into the sphere of his influence, a man named Philemon, a man named Onesimus. Onesimus. He's applying the gospel to real lives. He doesn't mention the cross one time in this letter. He doesn't need to because he's applying the cross and he's applying the gospel to real people in real life situations. And I mean, think about the gospel in this letter because we were all Onesimus once, right? Were we not all fugitives? Did we not all wander away like sheep? Did we not all have a death penalty on our head because the penalty of sin is death? Did we all not share the same need of forgiveness from Jesus? Did He not pay our debt to bring us back to Himself? Through His death, burial, and resurrection, were we not accepted and adopted into God's family as His children? 
The gospel is all over this letter. Philemon, forgive Onesimus just as God forgave you. Philemon, receive that that runaway back just as God received you through Jesus. Philemon, bring him into the family as a full member, as a son, just as God did you in Jesus. Philemon, set him free from his bondage just as God did for you through Jesus. Philemon, you're a recipient of God's grace of the gospel. Now extend that grace and that gospel to Onesimus. And all this, Paul is personally putting the glorious gospel of Jesus on exhibit, the gospel of reconciliation. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. He has committed to us the message of reconciliation, and we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this letter is what gospel reconciliation looks like. Just last week in our small group, after a trip to Chicago, and after seeing a section of the city ruined by anger and chaos, Ashley Walker said, what we need now more than ever is reconciliation. Amen to that. What we need now more than ever is the gospel of reconciliation. And that's why I said last week that as Paul was planting these seeds, gospel seeds that grew into gospel communities, he knew, he knew well that they would spread and slowly begin to impact that culture, would change things in the Roman Empire that were not as they should be, and that eventually would turn the world upside down. And the way this happened was one person at a time, one place at a time, one block at a time, one neighborhood at a time, one community at a time. And although the people living in Rome could never have imagined a world in which slavery did not exist, the early Jesus communities, the early churches, not only imagined it, they did it. They did it. So, let's bring it home. Let's bring it home. Here's my question. What in our culture needs the gospel? What in your sphere of influence needs the gospel applied? Because what our culture needs are people who follow Jesus who are known more for the gospel than we are for our political agendas. I am so convinced of that. We need to be known more for the gospel than our political agendas. We need to be people who think globally, but we act locally. Because it's so easy to forget that. It's so easy to get sucked into the big national issues, to give the majority of my time, my energy, my resources, my focus, my passion, the things that are happening in faraway places, and to forget the place that God has called me, which is Emporia, Kansas. So let us think globally and act primarily locally. So here's two questions. Where are you in need of applying the gospel locally? Where are you in need? Where am I in need of applying the gospel locally? Where in your family are you needing to apply the gospel? Where in your neighborhood? Where in your workplace? Where in this city are you needing to apply the gospel? And my other question, where in your sphere of influence, where in my sphere of influence, is the restorative grace of God most badly needed? Where is restoration, reconciliation most badly needed in my life? So, let us be a people who are gospel first people. Can we do that?
Gospel first people. People who give the majority of our time, our energy, our resources, our passion to the things that are happening here in this place, in my world in Emporia, Kansas. Let us think globally, but let us primarily act locally as Jesus and as Paul. So, in that regard, would you stand with me and end with a prayer from St. Francis of Assisi. And again, we don't just want to read words, okay? Let's make this a prayer of our heart. So, with, pray with me. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. And we pray in Jesus' name, and we say to that, Amen. So we, may we be a people reflect the gospel in our everyday lives in the people that we touch. May we be like Philemon was to Onesimus. So, Father, make us that kind of people. We go today sent by you to take the gospel of reconciliation. And may we do that. Give us insight and discernment and where. And we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, you are sent.